Uh, just do it now? Yeah. Be fine. Okay. Hey, this is Larry Hankin, and you better be watching to the Walter Paisley Movie House show. I'm telling you, no joke. Walter Paisley Movie House. It's about my book, too. Welcome to the Walter Paisley Movie House, where we strive to be the best kind of terrible influence. Coming to you from Nilbog Manor Studios, our music is by Jonathan Harmon, and I am your host, Dylan Rory. We are brought to you in part by our partner sponsor, Scarlet Lane Brewing. With five locations in the Indianapolis area, there are plenty of opportunities to try the official beer of horror. We are also brought to you by our partner sponsor, Can Can Cinema and Brasserie, a nonprofit cinema in the heart of Indianapolis. Be sure to check out their AV Club series, including a monthly cult movie hosted by yours truly. Okay, guys, here we are. Part two of Steve Stolier is finally out. Sorry this took so long. I started a new job and it has sucked up a lot of my time, but I'm dedicated to getting these out as much as I possibly can. So here it comes. I hope you enjoy. We pick up where we left off. Steve talking about how he got the job working for Groucho Marx. So I called Aaron and I said, is there anything at all that you think maybe I could, might be? And she said, well, actually, I used to be Groucho's secretary, but he's gotten to be so popular. I'm much more of a manager now, and we need someone to handle all of the fan mail that's been pouring in. And someone who really knows their Marx Brothers to organize all of his memorabilia, which will be donated to the Smithsonian. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, please, 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 please. Oh, my God, is this a dream? No, wait, please, my baby. And, and as I've said before, it, it felt like a, a, like, a cart, like a Tex Avery cartoon mm-hmm. where she's still on the phone explaining the job and I'm ringing the doorbell. <laughs> burger, burger. Yeah, how, did you, how did you get there? I was just talking to you. And it, it was just this dream. It was a literal dream come true because I used to dream about meeting Groucho Mm-hmm. And it would be so tangible. I would, I would, it's like, oh my God, I'm finally talking to him. And then I'd wake up and get that terrible frustration as the picture dissipates and I realize it was all in my head. So it was a literal dream come true to meet him and then get sure. this job at his house, making my own hours, getting paid money to wade ankle deep in Marx Brothers photos and scripts and letters and mm-hmm. memorabilia. And, you know, to, it was a very egalitarian household. So it wasn't like the help had to eat in the kitchen. So I was able to sit at the lunch table, regardless of who came over for lunch, whether mm-hmm. it was George Burns or Jack Lemon or Steve Allen, or if it was quote, just, Groucho and Aaron or Groucho and a nurse maybe Mm -hmm. and I I was able to just converse with him all the questions that I always wanted to ask him and then appreciating him as this this man from 1890 whose firsthand memories went from before the Wright brothers to after the moon landing that this this guy that knew George Gershwin and Irving Berlin and James Thurber and W.C. Fields and all these mythic and yeah. had just been a living witness to, you know, I mean, 
speaking about whether someone's Victorian or not, Queen Victoria still had 11 years left on the throne when Groucho was born. Now, she was in England and he was in right. the UK, but that's how far back he goes is Victoria was. And uh, I asked him once, how far back do you remember? And he thought, and he said, I guess the Spanish-American War, which wow. was 1898. And as I'm sure you know, but but both of your listeners don't. Um, uh, that's Mark, that's generous. <laughs> um, the Marx Brothers started out as a singing group and only gradually worked comedy into it. Mm -hmm. So Groucho was sometimes a soloist uh, in different vaudeville shows. And he was on the bill at a special presentation uh, at the Metropolitan Opera House on the same bill as Enrico Caruso. Wow. And it was the money went to benefit the victims of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Earthquake, yeah. So I was always a history buff. That was my major before I shifted it toward show business. And I, I, I was always walking this dual path of entertainment and history. And he was like the nexus of them because he had, it wasn't like he heard about this or read about this. Yeah. He lived it in addition to being Groucho Marx, that guy in the movie. So it was really just an, an incredible experience. Uh, the upside is obvious. The downside was twofold. One was Aaron Fleming was a very difficult mercurial woman with psychological problems. Yes. She was and eventually diagnosed schizophrenic, I believe. Schizophrenic, yeah. yeah. And she went off her meds. She was loony. She yes. was delusional. And she always thought people were out to get her. Sometimes they were. They were. <laughs> uh, but more often than not, it was her own. As Groucho got older and weaker, he grew more dependent on her, and it was a you know it was a delicate balance because mm -hmm. we worried that if she were removed from the scene, it might be like taking a junkie off a heroin cold turkey, and that could have greater ill effect than if she continued to stick around. So her craziness and and, you know, she was certainly verbally and emotionally abusive. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then Groucho's own spiraling down. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't come aboard until he was in his mid 80s and it had a severe stroke in 72. Um, but what was still left was there was so much he had to begin with that even with the ill health and hardening of the arteries and slowing down. He was still Groucho, and he still had those firsthand memories, and it was still yeah. overwhelmingly, you know, as I mentioned in, in Raised Eyebrows, it was it's like Dorothy at the end of Oz, that uh, uh, I remember some of it wasn't very nice, but most of it was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that's sort of how I... <clears throat> how I looked at that and, and ended up being there for three, the last three years of his life, mm -hmm. always expecting to get fired by Aaron for real or imagined trespasses. But he came very close at one point. Yes, there was in fact a mutiny <laughs> where we were, where the, the staff and his nursing staff and I were conspiring to 
de as deftly as possible, remove Aaron and replace her with Connie, the nurse, who was young and attractive. Mm -hmm. So Groucho would still have the arm candy, but someone with a medical background that was looking out for his best interests yeah. and not trying to further her career and take out her psychological problems on an elderly man. Mm -hmm. um, and somehow she got wind of it. I still don't know how, where the- I was, I've always wondered that <laughs> since uh, the first time I read your book. I got a call in the early morning hours. I understand you're in on a plot to get rid of me. Uh, <laughs> and again, I mean, from a deep sleep to, to the third degree with a spotlight on me and men with rubber hoses pacing. <laughs> Uh, and again, I, I don't know how I talked my way. I said, oh, no, I mean, that's ridiculous, Aaron. I owe you having the job at all. You're right. You did. What would Groucho do without you? And, and I mean, I you know, she, it really was, she was just like the queen of hearts was off with their head with hiring, mm -hmm. firing business people, attorneys, maids, housekeepers, uh, cooks nurses um hiring and firing i mean mm -hmm. there was I, there was one day we sat down to lunch and groucho said to aaron what's the matter don't you feel good today and she said i feel fine why and he said you didn't fire anyone today <laughs> so it's like <laughs> he was nobody's fool ultimately but he still kind of gave in to the so that was our big uh flop mutiny and she was in tighter than ever after that yeah. until the last months when there was a big battle between Groucho's son, Arthur, Arthur yeah. in conjunction with the Bank of America against Aaron as who is best equipped to be his conservator as he got weaker and hazier. And then all of the dirty laundry came out. And I mean, there was coverage on the yeah. news and newspaper stories about it's abusive she's abusive to groucho and but the problem was i i didn't have any soft spot for arthur because he and groucho had had years of ups and downs before she was on the scene yeah and he he had married this woman lois who was really just a harridan just a, an awful person i thought and Arthur always viewed me as part of Aaron's people. Yeah. Uh, and so I didn't, it, I was also Aaron said, if Arthur ever got control of Groucho, he'd put him in a home, which was something Groucho was. He was terrified really of that. Of. Yeah. Arthur Sheikman, his longtime friend and writer was in a place like that. I don't know if it was the motion picture hospital in Woodland Hills or some other place mm -hmm. and would depress Groucho to visit him. And he never wanted that. And we didn't yeah. know. I mean, Aaron said that's what would happen, but we never knew whether she was absolutely right or exaggerating or completely fabricating it. Right. So, so like in a film noir, there wasn't any obvious heroic person to be cheering to be put in charge of Groucho. And the the judge in with Solomonic wisdom chose Nat Perrin, who was one of Groucho's old friends yeah. and old writers, and also had a, a law degree mm -hmm. and 
did not have an obvious bias against Aaron or against Arthur or for either of them. He had Groucho's interests at heart. And that was like this rare lull, this period of peace between these warring factions before the curtain came down on Groucho. Right. And Nat put me in charge of the house on the weekends, and I was like a traffic cop as Aaron and her friends would visit Groucho, mm -hmm. and then Arthur and his friends. And Aaron, I mean, I heard her on the phone once complaining about me, saying, fucking servants are treating me like a cockroach. <laughs> uh, and I could see how someone, you know, with her outlook would see it as it's like i hire this kid to handle the fan mail and he's telling me don't you think it's time for you to leave here right i mean it really it, it, like cruella Deville or or, <laughs> or something but again my as with nat my allegiance was to the elderly man fading out at the end yeah of the so uh it, it it just was an extraordinary experience you brought up arthur and it I have a question that I'd written down and I wasn't sure how to broach it, but he was estranged from his children often, um, not just Arthur, but all of them at times and for varying reasons. And do you think that is part of the reason someone like you at your age and of course the, I know a lot of the young people coming in to visit were actually Aaron's friends and were more like more likely there to do Coke in the bathroom, but yeah, um was was he bullied by that a little bit as kind of having a surrogate family of sorts do you was think he bullied uh buoyed buoyed by oh, that buoyed. I thought buoyed. You said bullied bullied okay. i may have but i meant buoyed <laughs> uh well he enjoyed the attention he enjoyed the praise and adulation he loved applause and laughter and you know, to her credit, because, you know, one of the themes of my book is is taken from the Andre Gide quote, the color of truth is gray. And, and as I've gotten older and met more people, you realize that few people are either heroic or villainous. Correct. Yeah. There's, there's a whole spectrum. And so for the people who sit, you know, who want to paint Aaron as evil incarnate and just the worst thing in the world and they're not taking into account the fact that Groucho's children didn't want the responsibility of taking care of an increasingly right. uh, elderly man. Mm -hmm. And the work that Aaron put in making business deals, to, you know, sort of riding that wave of Mark's mania that had, mm -hmm. it, it has started before she was on the scene. She shouldn't be credited with that renaissance because even... Yeah. It's like when Groucho's on Cabot's show in 1969, which is two years before Aaron came along. Mm -hmm. uh, just before he sings Lydia, Groucho says to Cabot, I'm going to sing a song I sang on a Pullman car. And the audience goes crazy because they know what it is. Yeah. Says, Why are you applauding a Pullman car? They don't <laughs> even make those anymore. <laughs> um, but they, it, it's like there's your evidence that the wave had already broken because mm -hmm. all he had to say was i sang this in a pullman car and they knew it was lydia the tattooed lady yeah so but aaron came along and you know she was she devoted herself to him although for selfish reasons yeah. but she was there when he was just kind of 
in semi-retirement, rattling around in his sprawling ranch-style one-story house in Beverly mm -hmm. Hills. Um, and, you know, and it's a an open question whether he should ever have been put in the spotlight when his health started to deteriorate because his longtime friends thought it was sad, mm -hmm. um, but he loved it. He loved performing in the yeah. living room or guesting on a show. So it wasn't like she was saying, get out there and sing for those people. Dan. Right. He, he, you know, was a showman. Mm -hmm. um, and, and he did go out, you know, a bigger star than if she hadn't been there. But she made those last years so much more of a rocky road than he deserved for them to be. So yeah. it's it's a gray area. Yeah. Yeah. I were you this is complete non sequitur, but that's what I specialize in. Were you there when Drew Friedman and his brothers oh, were there with I wasn't his there that night? Okay. I heard okay. About it. And I and again Drew said, you know, Aaron was perfectly fine. Yeah. And that's a lot of, you know, and my answer to that is there's there's lots of images and footage of OJ and Nicole looking like the happiest couple in Hollywood. <laughs> uh, it proves nothing. Right. Um, that she was on her good behavior. And and uh, after Groucho died, there was another legal battle where the estate was suing Aaron for having finagled cars and and money and all this out mm -hmm. of Groucho. And she got like George Burns and Zeppo to testify on her behalf. And yeah. they, again, they, they saw her good side. They yeah. weren't with her. I was there initially seven days a week, mm -hmm. uh, but at any rate, over three years and not in public, and you know in different moods and all that and so uh it was easy for them to talk about how she brought groucho up and you know he would perk up on you and, and and he was lucky to have her and all that but as famous as they were and as long as they may have known groucho they really didn't know how bad aaron could be yeah so so there was this second and she ended up losing although she was basically broke so there was nothing yeah. really for them to reclaim and then she went on nightline with ted Koppel. oh it's the strangest thing real it's so strange aaron how are you going to pay a half a million dollar judgment i was going to borrow it from you ted but but no seriously aaron i was going to put it on my mastercard but but i think you've if you'll speak with my attorney, Mr. Sabi. Well, I'd love to speak with him under other circumstances, but I'm asking you what's next for you. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. And, and ultimately, ultimately, she had a very terrible end. Um, she did. She committed suicide. Um, just an awful end for her. Yeah, um, 2003. She, she yeah fired a gun into her mouth. She was living at a board and care facility. Mm -hmm. As hokey as the sounds, it was almost directly under the Hollywood sign. It yeah, it's like almost weirdly it poetic. It sounds like lore or yeah. urban myth. <laughs> no, it was a board and care almost right under the yeah. Hollywood sign. I don't know how she was able to have a gun 
I don't know what her last. No, it's America. Song. You yes. can get those anywhere. Oh, it was before it was in France. <laughs> um, uh, she didn't leave a note. So we really don't know why one day she decided, I don't want to see tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I mean, her life at that point was pretty sad. She had been intermittently homeless. Yeah. Uh, in and out of psych units, on and off medications. And understandably, some of the people she thought were good friends of hers, once Groucho was gone and she, and, and she became even more unpredictable, thought, I don't need this. What is yeah. why, What am I getting out of my friendship with her? She lashes out at me, da 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 So she kind of found herself alone. And, yeah. And, but, but basically... Uh, she she created the situation and then kind of had to pay for it, even yeah. though, you know, psychological problems, she didn't, you know, you don't make yourself have schizophrenia. No, not at all. But it doesn't, but ex it, 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 it explains, it, it, it doesn't excuse it. That's it. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. So, um, one other question about people who would visit. Groucho was good friends with Irwin Allen. And did you have any interactions with him? Uh, he was at parties. He wasn't one of the people that meant a lot to me to be able to meet because I was much more into the people from the vaudeville yeah. and the third classic 30s and all that. Mm -hmm. And Erwin Allen made disaster movies right. and, and uh, had just a horrible toupee. <laughs> just he and John Goodell, the producer of You Bet Your Life, are tied for the well to then Jessel. Now I have Oh, to you got yeah, the Jessel. Do you like my hair? Yeah. That's <laughs> of course it's my hair. I paid it's, good money for it. It's, I always have to pull my cheeks out when I do my Jessel. But... I call him Julius because that was his name. I never called him Groucho. I only called him Julius. Well, it, doesn't it matter that Harpo called Groucho Groucho and Chico called Groucho? So why do you get bonus points for calling him by his real name, George? Anyway, <laughs> You know, there are so many legends about how each brother got their names. Um, Harpo's pretty obvious, but Chico, Groucho, Gummo, um, it's, it was said Gummo had gum-soled shoes and Groucho had a grouch bag that he'd wear around well, his Well, I don't accept the grouch bag. Yeah, I don't either. I think just because if it was common, why would he be stuck with the label? It's clear right. that it was because of his personality. Yeah, you know, and I mean, his his mother's nickname for him was Der Dunkel, which in German is the dark one. Dark one, yeah. So he, I guess he always had that kind of cynical cloud over him, which you know became his persona. Mm -hmm. But that's why he was Groucho. It's not because he had a grouch, but. Zeppo, for me, remains shrouded in mystery. Um, and I know Rob Bader puts an astonishing amount of work into his book on the March for the Stage Years. And he yeah. talks about uh, Zippy the Pinhead, mm -hmm. and who, you know, that was back in the days of carnivals. And you saw some of them in, in Freaks, which we yeah. Um. I've corrupted then, children with that movie. So, yeah. You what? I've corrupted many children with that movie. It still packs a wallop. <laughs> yes. Uh, just just let her try. <laughs> just, uh, Hans, 
Hans, when I see the big woman make the eyes at you, it breaks my heart. Frida, you speak shice. All I want is for you should be happy, Hans. Frida, I am happy. She makes me happy. All right. You have almost too much inflection, though. Come on, come on. <laughs> do your Daisy and Harry Earls impression. No, no, really, please. Do you do a Johnny Eck? <laughs> do you know that? Do you know that about his stage act with his twin brother? I know he had an orchestra that he would conduct. He had a twin brother who was full full size, mm -hmm. but their faces looked the same, and. They would do an act where his full-size brother would get into a box and a magician would saw it in half. And then Johnny would pop out of the top hat and go up the aisle on his hands and the audience members would faint and scream awesome. because they had seen this guy and now it's just half a man running up the... I mean that that's entertainment. That's you know? incredible. They don't wow. make acts like that anymore. <laughs> uh, how do we get into freaks? Oh, it doesn't matter. I'll talk about that movie anytime. <laughs> I did meet Angelo Rosito, who was did the you? One that said, "Just let them drink, drink, drink. Just yeah. let them try. Offend one of us, and you." When I was at Universal in the Steno Pool. Uh, they were shooting a scene from Beretta on which he had a semi-regular role as mm -hmm. a yeah. boy. And uh, I remember coming out of the elevator in the lobby where they, they were shoot, setting up a shot, and there was little Angelo. I mean, he really was tiny. He, yes. Even for a dwarf, he was yeah. short. And he came over to me and he said, do you know where Ray is? And I said, I don't even know who Ray is. That was the extent of it. I didn't promise it was compelling, but hell, I met someone that was in free. I mean, that to me, you know, you say Harry Ruby put you one degree away from Groucho. I'm one degree in. <laughs> I am now one degree away from <laughs> and Groucho. <laughs> uh, well, going back to their stage work, there's so many good stories. Uh, I could rattle off a few, but what is your favorite of the legendary vaudeville stories of the Marx Brothers? There's, oh, I there's the I night, the night short time. swapping. <laughs> I have a rough time when anyone says, what was your favorite or what was the funniest or what was the most memorable? What would be the first that pops into your head? Uh, two things. One was in vaudeville, when they finally made it, Groucho said they went to a restaurant and the waiter handed Harpo the menu and Harpo went and coffee. Is this just audio or video also? Uh, well, it's, it, it's audio, but I can share that. <laughs> he, he, he ran his index finger down the entire menu and then said, and coffee. It's like, we can finally afford to have whatever we want. Yeah. Um, also, that uh, each of the brothers had a Harley, which would have been something to see the four marks. <laughs> right. Like Hell's Angels on wheels. Uh, and, well, uh, given Zeppo's youth, he actually could have been a Hell's Angel. So. <laughs> 
Um, and Groucho said Harpo lost control and ran into a mule and killed it. Oh my God. <laughs> With uh, the Harley. Wow. <laughs> well, they would famously occasionally just swap roles. Um, I know Zeppo had to play Groucho when he had appendicitis. Um, right. And there was that one time that Chico and Harpo swapped switched out. characters. And then afterwards, Chico said to his daughter, Maxine, well, what'd you think? And she wasn't there. She had she had had some other engagement and he thought she was there and she he she didn't know what he was talking about. And he said, are you telling me you didn't notice? <laughs> and she had to come clean and say, I wasn't there. And he said, Harp and I switched roles for the whole show. I mean, it's just incredible to think about that. I mean, they all looked exactly alike. You, yeah, you see it when they don't have makeup. And I'll mm -hmm. post I'll post a picture of them out of makeup. And invariably, some, someone will say, which one is what? Because I, I hate spoon feeding. Yeah. Here is a photo from Duck Soup with Groucho Marx. It's like, <laughs> come on, if you're in my Facebook friends, you'll know who. But then someone will say, I can't tell if that's Harper or Chippo. And mm -hmm. the, the two of them did look pretty similar. They and really did. Gummo, yeah. Gummo sort of had Chico's face, so the sad eyes and a, a, a kind of sideways smile um maxine had that too his daughter yeah yeah, yeah really was looking like looking at her dad mm -hmm. strange uh strange feeling so your groucho goes to the great beyond and what do you do next i die shortly after that okay well that's that's convenient then I, I guess I we don't have job. to talk about anything else. I got a job at the at Universal in the Steno Pool, typing scripts from eleven to eight every day on a Selectric tube, Berettas, uh, Columbos, Rockford Files, Kojaks, and every now and again a feature script. And it was fun to figure out how's this one going to do. I remember getting a, an early draft of Animal. Uh, sorry. Animal House, mm -hmm. an understandable slip of the tongue. <laughs> and thinking, this is great. This is really genuinely funny. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I remember typing another one that was, it just was so preposterous. Uh, it started out with the, with the elderly Howard Hughes riding a motorcycle in the desert in Vegas and cracking up and thumbing a ride and getting picked up by some guy in a pickup truck and they started singing about Santa's souped up sleigh. And I thought this, how could they have bought this? And it ended up being Melvin and Howard and winning the Oscar for best screenplay. So my thumb was not always on the pulse of what was <laughs> doing well in Hollywood. But, and then I became a, a production secretary for a guy named Bill Dial, who also became a really good friend of mine. He had worked on WKRP in Cincinnati and he was from Atlanta, and he was just a great guy with a vast knowledge of the West and, and the Civil War and all mm -hmm. this great stuff. And then I had uh, gotten in contact with Dick Cavett when I was working for Groucho. I sent him a letter, and he answered it. And, and he appreciated having a pipeline into the intrigue that was going on with 
Arthur and Aaron and Groucho and all that. And then can you, Groucho, can you say that like Dick Cabot? That, uh, he's coming up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to step on That's your back. That's all bed. right. I don't care. <laughs> we'll go back to freaks. Um, uh, then when Groucho died, I thought, well, I guess that also severs my connection to Cabot because here he's this erudite guy went to Yale and has, you know, is one of those New York snobs. And uh, why would he stay in touch? And then the phone rang uh, in the steno pool at Universal. And they said, Steve, call for you. Still here. It's Cabot. Listen, I hope just because Groucho's gone, we're not going to lose touch. And by the way, I hope you don't mind, but I've shown some of your letters to Woody, and he says they're very well written. So I had to empty the wow. urine out of my shoes. <laughs> he was calling me saying, let's not lose touch, and I hope you don't mind. <laughs> Woody Allen says you write good letters. And he, uh, Cabot ended up hiring me away from Universal to write for him at HBO in New York, and I moved to New York and lived there for two and a half years. And that was its own wondrous experience. What and, was that like? Cause that's back when New York was still fun. Uh, I loved it. I loved it. Uh, I didn't love the muggy summers. Mm -hmm. You, it's like you can bundle up and, and layer in the, in the winter. And plus I loved just seeing central park blanketed in snow all the pathways are covered up, so you can't quite tell where you are. And it's just this Courier and Ives wonderland. Plus, it's like Christmas in New York with the parade, and uh, as opposed to L.A., with perpetually 72 with right. fake blocking on Christmas trees. And, um, but, man, when you shower and towel off, and then you go and stand in front of the in the in the window air conditioner naked and you're dripping wet with sweat mm -hmm. there's nothing left to take off yeah. and then god forbid you get on a subway that where the air isn't working oh. <laughs> so those kind of defeated me but otherwise the idea that i could just pull on my sneakers and pick a direction and i was so crazy about the whole the algonquin that was something that groucho turned me on to the algonquin round table robert yeah Benson, Dorothy parker and george kaufman and so many landmarks are still there yeah Plus just bopping around with cabot that he would just say hey i have tickets to go here do you want to go with and so we were he was like a big brother showing me all these things wonderful um and then i got to meet Actually, on either side of my 30th birthday, I got to meet Catherine Hepburn and Woody Allen. Wow. Uh, which helped oh, wow. crush in the big 3 0. Wow. So I, I didn't want to meet Woody because I had seen Stardust Memories and I mm -hmm. felt like he had contempt for fans. And I felt, as I often did, what could I ever say to this person? that he would care to hear. I mean, mm -hmm. for heaven's sake. Um, so C Cabot and he were friends since the early 60s. Yeah. I mean, really good friends. So he would say, you know, Woody and I are going to Central Park or Woody and I went. 
And I would just listen and sort of vicariously enjoy it, but never having to be put on the spot. And then one day, Cavett called me and said, I just noticed that Woody is shooting his new film around the corner from my house. So I thought if you came over here, we could just sort of happen to show up and then you could meet him. And I said, and, and he won't mind? And he said, oh, I didn't say that. <laughs> you may very well say, really, Dickie, I wish you hadn't. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's great. So now you're saying I can meet him, but no guarantees on anything. <laughs> so I went to Central Park and met up with Kevin. And we went into this building that was one of those old stone buildings that's a combination of uh, apartments and medical office, medical suite. And we go up in this elevator and the elevator doors open and there's like production assistants with clipboards and lights and stuff. And then, the, and this sounds like I'm exaggerating it for the purposes of telling this and I'm not. There was a long hallway of exam rooms because it was a doctor's office. And at the end of the hallway, one door to one of the rooms was open and a bright light was emanating from the room because that's where he was shooting. Mm -hmm. And it was like the Wizard of Oz. It's like <laughs> that that room where the bright light is. You're out of the woods, you're out of the <laughs> That's right. And Cabot said, stay here, let me check it out. <clears throat> so I see Cabot go and stand in the hallway looking into that room and just watching. Then the light goes out, and then Woody Allen and Mia Farrow exit, and they're standing there talking to Cabot. And I'm thinking, wow, there's Dick Cabot and Woody Allen and Mia Farrow right there. And then as Cabot's talking, I see him turn towards me and go, and the two of them look. And of course I went, and I was summoned, and Woody said, uh, I'm Woody Allen, and this is Miss Farrow, and we're here on the set of our latest picture. All sort of like a, a correspondent for Entertainment Tonight. <laughs> and after that, it was it was notable for how unnotable it was. It was the four of us talking. He knew who I was because of Groucho and Cabot Council. It wasn't just mm -hmm. like, why is this kid here? Right. And and I felt comfortable enough to participate and not just listen. Um, we had, Kevin and I had recently seen, went to a screening of Zelig, mm. at which he introduced me to Diane Keaton, who was sitting in front of us. Oh, wow. Um, so they were talking about Zelig, and Woody said, you know, I wrote to Greta Garbo to ask if she'd be one of the interview subjects on camera and I knew it was a long shot and I knew she'd say no but I thought I'm just going to ask and what's the worst that can happen he said I sent her a letter and it said uh, you can choose when we shoot you can choose where you can pick what choose what you say if after it's all over you see the footage and you don't like it I will dump the footage. It's all entirely up to you. And he said, I never heard back. And Cabot said, did you send it to 
12073rds or whatever. He knew her address. And Woody said, yeah. And I said, you probably put the wrong apartment number on it. He said, that was probably it. Your credit card go apartment three, and she's in four, so they had no way. <laughs> but I, and then, but since then, I moved back to California when work dried up there, and I got an offer to work for my old friend Bill Dial, this time as a mm-hmm. writer on a TV show. Anyway, I think we've reached the end of a broadcast day. Absolutely. I do have to ask very quickly about It's the Girl in the Red Truck, Charlie Brown. It is the most bizarre thing I've ever seen, uh, and it was your first voice work at least on your IMDb, yeah. how well, did you how did you begin getting into that voice? Work? A friend of mine, my former fiance, uh, went to work at Bill Melendez Productions, mm-hmm. and uh, she was involved in casting. And Bill was looking for someone that could do a French accent for because uh, Spike Snoopy's brother cousin? Yeah, cousin or brother or something uh uh was listen was listening to french lessons yes on a tape recorder and so i went in and did that and bill was delighted and then bill so i would get called in to do other things which also led to the frosty returns mm-hmm. this stuff but yeah girl in the red truck is a weird thing because it was like sparky charles schultz uh wanted his daughter the fucking animated she might be dog. An actress, so it was a blend of huh? The fucking animated dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, now we're getting into unsavory aspects of celebrity life, which I thought we got out of when we we're talking about Woody. Um, he was wanted to be an actress, and yeah. so he said, "Then I'll write a thing where you're." And so she interacts with animated characters because it was after. Uh, Roger Rabbit. Yeah, it was 88. Praise of uh, humans interacting with animated characters. Um, And it's, uh, yeah, it's a strange thing, but that was my first official thing. And then I got called in for other stuff. Mm -hmm. And, 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 oh, I mean, the the Frosty Returns was a great experience because I was working with John Goodman and Jan Hooks and Brian Doyle Murray. Yes. And uh, that, and I remember thinking, I hope this, what they're going to do is run this after Frosty the Snowman, and it becomes a beloved perennial at holiday time. And sure enough, every year, CBS runs at 8 o'clock Frosty, 8.30 Frosty Returns, and then I get a residual for several hundred dollars some months later for an afternoon that I spent in the, in the, like 1992, mm-hmm. uh, working with those guys. Yeah. So that was neat. That's great. I just, you've just had a life that I'm very envious of across the oh, board. <laughs> well, there's a lot of dark stuff that we didn't get into. Oh, well, we all have dark stuff. That's, <laughs> I did want to, um, it's, Speaking of somewhat dark stuff, your late wife, Linda Field, um, also worked in film and worked on some great films, uh, Pump Up the Volume, The People Under the Stairs, Black Magic Woman. 
uh and my best friend is a vampire for a cult film podcast she, yes she kind of uh, zandali and rambling rose yeah rambling rose such a great movie kickboxer too lest we forget uh <laughs> she what was great was uh she had butt length hair and she would put it in a braid when she worked because she was a grip electrician yeah um we were an interesting couple because i'm this you know like white collar guy that writes and is into the Algonquin round table and she was carrying cable up a ladder across a catwalk rewiring lamps that we'd find at flea markets and anyway <clears throat> and she would you know she'd be wearing basically a t-shirt and jeans and boots and have her leather tool belt with all the stuff hanging from it then at the rap party before the wrap party, she would take her hair out of the braid that it had been in for a few weeks, which gave it like Bride of Frankenstein frizziness all the way down past her shoulders. And she'd put on makeup and she'd put on a dress and she would go basically uh, invisibly. She would show up at this wrap party and walk up to crew guys and say, hi, Josh. And they'd look at her and go, oh, hi. Uh, how do you, who are you? It's me. It's oh my god! She loved doing that. She, it's like she was in disguise as herself. That's great. But yes, she uh, she died, and and my life. I'm very sorry. I'm a I'm a widower also, so I'm, okay. I'm we're in that same wonderful club, um, and it's it's no fun for a while. But you kind of come of through. Club we did not want to be. Not of. at all. Didn't even ask. I didn't even want to wade up to my knees. No. So, <laughs> sorry. I had to pull a Groucho reference. That's all right. It's Lift all the mood. Fitting and proper. <laughs> well, the books raised eyebrows. Hey. With the uh, wonderful drawing by Drew Friedman on yes, the front. Great. Um, I I had a hard uh hardback copy, the original hardback that I had dog-eared and destroyed. So I Thank reordered you. and got the expanded edition, oh, which was great. Um, and then also you have Salamis and Swastikas, which is a collection yeah. of letters and comment from your father that you comment on and kind of build some context around. Right. And I, um, oh, I should probably mention if people would like to order a personalized or signed copy apart from Amazon, if they want to mm -hmm. get one signed by me, they can order one from my website which is Steve Stolier, S-T-O-L-I-A-R.com. Mm -hmm. And I have a small supply of uh, both books, and I would be happy to write whatever you want and send them on their merry way. Great. I will have your uh, link to your website on there. Okay. Um, and uh, as always, uh, listeners, I, I will put links to that. When I put books up, I also put links to Irvington Vinyl and Books, our local bookstore. Um the last independent bookstore in Indianapolis. Wow. Uh, so um, if you want to support them too, uh, I'm sure you could probably work out with Steve a way to mail it to him and he'd be happy to sign that version too. Uh, Steve, this has been great. Thank you so much. Well, thank you as well. I'm glad you knew what you're talking about because sometimes, <laughs> remember when, when Raised Eyebrows first came out uh, in hardcover years ago, uh, I was assigned a, a publicity guy from the publisher, and he would just line up 
random interviews Ugh. with radio shows. And it's like, I would have to, he would say, you're going to be on in Nashville and it's six o'clock their time. So it's three o'clock your time. But I was enough of a whore to get the word out that I would right. just smile on. And you got the whole spectrum. You got hardcore Marx Brothers fans. And then, and I'm not kidding, and neither was the guy. One of the disc jockeys said, now, which was the brother that played the harp? Mm. And I wanted to say, take a wild guess. First. It was Gummo, right? <laughs> so thank you for knowing which which brother played the harp. <laughs> Assuming you do. I I listened to a lot of interviews with you prior to this in, oh, in well. prepping. And there were a few where I'm just like, oh. Oh, come on. Yeah, or they don't get, they don't understand. Or I'll say it for the unseen camera because the host doesn't get my sense of humor or is too focused on the next question. (laughs) Skippy low. Thanks so much, Steve. All right. There you go. That was part two with Steve Stolier. I could talk Groucho Marx and the Marx Brothers all day long. And what a great person to discuss them with. He really uh, just is a savant when it comes to all things uh, Marx Brothers and a lot of uh, the early Hollywood stuff. Really interesting guy. Please check out his book. The movie will be coming out soon with Jeffrey Rush playing Old Groucho. Uh, Looks to be like it will be a pretty good production. Uh, Up next, I will have Bruce Valanche. Finally, I'm going to get the Bruce Valanche interview out for you guys. Uh, I'm going to try and get it out later this week, so it could be a two-for week for you. Uh, Other than that, get out in the world and take care of your servers because it's the Walter Paisley Movie House, and we do not piss on hospitality. Talk to you later.